Howdy, Gasly Ghouls. I'm Lee. And I'm Devin. Welcome to Gasly. So, Devin, what's new with you? What's new with me is we just got back from my favorite band's concert, Dance Gavin Dance. It was awesome. It was downtown. Um, the venue, I'd never been there before, and it was amazing. It was one of the, my favorite concerts because everybody was just bouncing around and dancing, Gavin dancing, and having a great time. <laughs> What's new with you, Lee? That was going to be my update, too. It was so fun. Everyone was dancing and grooving, and I loved it. So what are we learning about today? Who died today? Today, I bring you guys the case of the most recent man to die of the death penalty in the state of Montana. So let's hop in. The Rodstein family is a family of four who's been living in Billings, Montana. So the patriarch, the father, and the husband's name is David Rodstein. He is a 39-year-old hardworking man with a successful career as an engineer. And I'm on a roll, again, with my stories being about engineers. Something about him. There's just something they about him. They kill people or there's something bad that happens to him. <laughs> they attract crime. David's wife, Monica Rodstein, is a 39-year-old woman. So this couple is the same age. And Monica is a secretary for the Billings School District. And on top of this, she's been the president of the clerical union for two terms. So a clerical union is a labor union that ensures that office workers like clerks, bookkeepers, secretaries receive fair wages and benefits and basically lets them have a voice in the workplace. Hey, pro-union. Yeah, so Monica, she is beautiful. She's super well-liked and she's described as a pleasant, trustworthy, efficient person and she had poise as well. David and Monica have two children. The oldest is their 15-year-old daughter, Amy, who is a majorette on the baton twirling team at her high school. Cool. And then the second and the youngest child of the Rodstein family is 11-year-old Andrew, who family and friends call AJ. So AJ's in the sixth grade, and his teacher says that he is just the smartest little kid you'll ever meet. He's personable, extremely bright, and he has an incredible sense of humor for somebody who's so young. So AJ is that kid at school who makes sure other kids aren't left out, and he just wants to be everybody's friend. He's known to always have a twinkle in his eye and a crooked grin, just like his dad. That's sweet. The Rodstein family is really close, so David and Monica love hanging out with their children. So when many parents would use a work party or plans as an excuse to get a babysitter or have a night out for themselves, they instead invite their kids to tag along, and they can all have a good time together as a family unit. That's rare. I respect that. (laughs) Yeah, David is a pretty big storyteller, and he's always cracking jokes with his family and telling other people funny and embarrassing stories. David is well-respected. He has a great reputation. He's a man of his word, and his friends say that he's just a warm and jovial guy who can always make you laugh. Monica is known to make her own clothes with colorful, bright fabrics, and whenever she has leftover fabric, she makes ties out of it for David to wear to work. So he wears these vibrant, colorful ties really often and is known for them at work. And this couple is known to go in public with David wearing a tie that matches Monica's outfits, which is so cute. That's cool. We should start doing that. We should. If only I knew how to make clothes. I wear ties all the time when we go out. (laughs) (laughs) Do you own a tie? 
Do we have a tie in this house? Yes, I have okay. a tie. <laughs> so this couple's friends love being around them because they're easygoing, hospitable, and they don't talk badly about anyone behind their backs. They're not gossipers. They're just genuinely good and trustworthy people with a great relationship with each other and with their awesome kids. All right, so they're really great people. So what happened to them? <laughs> we know how this story goes. You're catching on. So David, the father and husband, is excelling in his role at Ryan's IGA, which is a chain of grocery stores that he's been working for in Billings, Montana. The chain of grocery stores is all across the U.S., but he's been working in Montana. Mm -hmm. So basically, David will do remodels on stores or do repairs inside the stores. So the family originally lived in Nebraska, but had moved to Billings, Montana as the kids grew up. So Billings is in Yellowstone County, right next to Yellowstone National Park. So this family has spent the past several years surrounded by the beauty of the mountains and the wildlife of Montana, but their time here has come to an end because David has earned a promotion at work that is relocating the family from Montana in the Northwest U.S. all the way across the country to Atlanta, Georgia in the Southeast. Uh Uh-oh. The Rodsteins throw a big goodbye party where many friends of the parents and the kids come together to give goodbyes and make some last memories. Everybody who is attending the party is hugging onto the Rodsteins so tight, exchanging funny stories of their times together, whether it's their big ski trips or everyday work memories, and some tears are even shed at this party. I bet. So this family sells their house, packs up their belongings, A moving company packs up their furniture and boxes into a huge truck, and it leaves the Rodstein family in an empty house. They say goodbye to their split-level home of seven years. David and Monica console their children filled with bittersweet emotions. They grab their suitcases, and they drive their family car to the airport Metra Inn on Main Street, where the family of four and their dog Tigger plan to stay overnight and then in the morning drive across the country in their Honda Accord to their new home in Atlanta. They also plan to stop in Nebraska to visit some family on the way. So they check into the motel on the night of April 17th of 1986 and they go to bed early knowing that they need to get up at about 4 a.m. before the sun even rises to begin their journey to Nebraska to visit Monica's parents. At 4 a.m. the next morning, which is April 18th, David's alarm goes off and it's time to get going. David, Monica, Amy, and AJ roll out of bed far before the crack of dawn and the family begins taking their suitcases out to the car. It's so early in the morning that there's even a guy checking into the hotel to get a night of sleep in the room neighboring the Rodsteins as they pack their car. So the teenage daughter Amy places her suitcase in the car and heads back into the motel room when a stranger walks into the room behind her holding a gun. No. And it's the same guy who the family had just seen checking into the motel room. Wow. Next to the family. How old is the girl? She's 15. 15. Yeah. So he followed her into the room and then closed the door behind him. So this guy, he looks about 30 years old. He's white. He has curly strawberry blonde hair and a really thick mustache. He's like six feet tall, and he has this crazed look in his eyes. So this intruder, his name is also David. So in order to not get the madman confused with the father of the Rodstein family, who's also named David, I'm going to call the intruder Dawson, which is his last name. So Dawson demands for the entire Rodstein family to follow him to his motel room directly next door. 
He says, quote, calm down. I need your money. We're going to the next room, end quote. And they do follow his instructions because although he's not holding anybody at gunpoint, the whole family can clearly see his gun. Right. So once all four family members and the family dog Tigger are in his room, Dawson puts the do not disturb sign on the outside of the door, and then he closes and locks the door behind him, joining the Rodsteins in the room. Okay. Best case scenario, we have a robbery. Best case scenario. Dawson has successfully abducted an entire family of four with no witnesses because it's 4 a.m. and nobody else is awake at the hotel. Dawson turns the motel's TV on a ridiculously high volume at this point, so no other motel guests can hear any screams or cries or sounds at all from the Rodsteins. The family looks over to see Dawson has laid out duct tape, socks, and a bandana on one of the two beds, and he demands that each family member lie down on the floor face down. Wait, so this was like predetermined, wasn't it? Or did he do that while they were in the room? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to find out. We'll just have to keep going deeper in the story. All right. He binds each family member's hands and feet with duct tape and subsequently gags them, starting with the father, David, first, then the mother, Monica, who begs Dawson just to take the money and let them go free because he did come into their room saying this is a robbery. Right. Um, But he ignores her and he gags her. So next, 11-year-old AJ is bound and gagged. And in this moment, some members of the family are crying, some are trembling, and the two children look to their parents for help, but their parents are helpless at the end of a gun's barrel, duct tape and gagged. The only person not yet gagged at this point is 15-year-old Amy. Dawson tells her that he needs her help getting the remaining suitcases and belongings from the Rodstein's room, so she helps him. She goes into the room next door with him. She grabs the remaining bags from the room while Dawson wipes down the room's surfaces with a towel to get rid of any fingerprints. He grabs Amy and then they return to his motel room, leaving the Rodstein's room empty without a trace of evidence as to where they've disappeared to. Once in Dawson's room, he duct tapes Amy's wrists and feet and gags her. So at this point, every single person in the family has been bound and gagged. Now that the family's suitcases, purses, and bags are all in one place, Dawson starts sifting through them. He takes out jewelry, cash, traveler's checks, and credit cards. And this is what he said he wanted from the family, to rob them, and then everything would be fine after that. So when he pulls a syringe out of his own bag that's filled with a fluid, the father, David, asks him what he's doing. Dawson says that he used a fake name to check into the hotel room, and that he's going to use this syringe to put everybody in the family to sleep. Oof. And then he will leave, and the Rodsteins will be found by the maids or the hotel staff later when Dawson is long gone. Okay. And he used an incorrect name, so nobody would be able to track him. Okay. Of course, the family has no say in the matter of whether they get drugged, so Dawson does inject this mystery substance into both David and Monica, the parents. Then he asks Amy to turn and look at the wall after this. From the corner of her eye, she sees her mother kick Dawson, and he reacts pretty calmly and just tells her to calm down, everything will be fine. But these are the last interactions that David or Monica will ever have, 
and the last time that Amy or AJ will hear their parents' voices. Wow. Because Dawson gets a telephone cord from the hotel room and strangles both David and Monica to death. They are both dead at the age of 39 years old, and Amy and AJ, their children, are facing away from their parents, so they actually don't know that their parents have been killed at this point. The TV is too loud for them to hear the struggle, and then when things continue to be silent, they assume that their parents have fallen asleep from the drug injection. Wow. Oh, it's such a tough scenario. It's like a what would you do, and it's just like, at some point, you gotta go for it. You can't just get bound up and everything, even if there is a gun. It's tough. Tough and scary. Yeah, it's tough and scary. Because you're going on their word. It's like what they say about don't get in a vehicle with somebody because 95% of people that get in vehicles with kidnappers and murderers don't make it out. Yeah, they give you false promises that you'll survive. Yeah, Yeah. so that's tough. And at this point, it's scary because the kids, I mean, they don't know it, but Mm -hmm. there's only kids left. Yeah. And they're way less likely to defend themselves. Yep, it's too late now. So over the next few hours, 15-year-old Amy and 11-year-old AJ are left to just stare at the wall, terrified, while Dawson packs up the suitcases that he previously shuffled through for valuables. Amy looks over at her parents, who are now covered by a blanket, and she believes they're asleep, but she notices a big patch of blood on the floor by them, about 8 inches in diameter, so she starts to freak out and she asks Dawson to check on them, but he seems unworried, he tells her they're just sleeping from the injection, everything is fine. And talking about the injection seems to remind him of something. He now takes some sink water in a bowl and mixes in a mysterious substance, and then forces AJ to drink it. He says this is to put AJ to sleep, and shortly after, AJ does fall asleep. He also hands the same mixture to Amy, but when he turns away, Amy quickly pours it onto the bedspread that she's on and then covers the wet spot with a pillow. Okay. So while AJ is asleep, Dawson also strangles him to death without Amy knowing. AJ only got to live 11 years on this earth, 11 good years with parents who love him, but he deserved so many more. So David, Monica, and A.J. Rodstein were murdered within hours of being abducted, and Amy thinks that her family members are just sleeping. So is he actually drugging people, or is it just like, does it just look like he's drugging people? Is he like trying to kill them in a way that won't, they won't feel pain? Like, what's the point of doing all this? I think he's drugging them so that he can strangle them without them fighting back. Mm, okay, that's fair. So he killed them by strangling them. They died yeah. of asphyxiation. So now it's just Amy, Dawson, and the Rodstein's family dog, Tigger, in the room. What's the dog doing? The dog's just sitting there? I don't know. And it what makes kind me of dog wonder. is it? I have no idea what kind of dog it is. And I also am wondering, is the dog just like pooping and peeing in the room or is Dawson like taking the family dog out? Yeah. I know that's a really insignificant detail. I'll never know the answer. Is it like a Yorkie that's just sitting there or was it like a freaking lab that's having like, I don't know. That's crazy. It's got to be a small dog if he's just letting, letting it happen. Yeah. Tigger's not doing anything. Yeah. Tigger's not doing anything. Tigger never does anything. It's just a character in the story. So at this point, it is almost as if Dawson has just given up on the idea of drugging or killing Amy. I think he assumes that she drank the drug that he gave out and it just didn't impact her. So he starts having her leave the motel room with him briefly for little errands that he goes on. So 
He gets the keys to the Rodsteins family car, their Honda Accord, and he brings Amy into it with him as he moves the car to a parking lot behind the motel that's not as easily visible from the road. He brings Amy to a nearby convenience store in his own car, which is a black Volkswagen Bug, to pick up cigarettes and a newspaper. He goes to the bank, he stops for fast food, and then he also leaves Amy in the car while he visits several houses. Like she sees him chatting with people at the front door of these houses, but can't actually hear their conversations and doesn't know if these people see her in the car. In addition to this, Dawson visits his own apartment twice over the two days following the abduction of the Rodsteins and leaves Amy in the car outside both times unrestrained. So, of course, the temptation to escape is this tremendous weight on Amy's 15-year-old shoulders, but she ultimately decides against it for two reasons. So, number one, she thinks that even if she were to escape and find someone before Dawson catches up to her, she thinks whoever she runs into wouldn't believe her because the story is just too crazy and nothing like this happens in Billings. Reason number two is that she still believes her parents and her brother are alive. Oh, yeah, she true. thinks they're asleep, but alive, and she believes that escaping would jeopardize their lives. So instead, she sifts through Dawson's car to find any information about him that she possibly can. Although I've been saying his name, Amy doesn't actually know his name is David Dawson until she finds his ID and his social security number in his car. Okay. So she quickly grabs the paper sleeve out of a music cassette tape. She finds a pen in the car and she writes both his name and social security number down on this sleeve. And then she folds up the piece of paper and places the sleeve with his personal information into her pocket as evidence, just in case anybody finds her dead body because she thinks just because he's taking her around in this car with him doesn't mean that she's coming out of this scenario alive. It's pretty smart. I like that. It is smart. Back at the motel, it has been two days since Dawson abducted Amy's family and killed her parents and brother. She does not know her family is dead. She thinks they're just drugged and sleeping. So for two days, she's been in this motel room and riding around town with Dawson and part of this abduction seems planned, right? To right. what you said earlier. It does. He had duct tape, bandanas, a gun, and a syringe with sleeping meds. But on the other hand, the abduction of specifically the Rodsteins seemed unplanned, like a crime of opportunity. So he just happened upon this family at 4 a.m. at a motel in the middle of the night in the neighboring room, their door was slightly ajar and he decided to just bust in and abduct them. It makes me wonder, was he driving by the motel up to no good with all of these things already in his bag, like looking for a victim and then he saw 15 year old Amy walking to her car in the dark by herself at 4 a.m. and then he decided to drive in and book a room there? Because remember, he has an apartment nearby, he's not homeless. Or was he already planning to stay at this motel for whatever reason and just happened to try to abduct his neighbors because he had what he saw was this golden opportunity? And then also, he had this bag packed with duct tape, a gun, and a syringe. And so it makes me wonder, was he just driving around in the early hours of April 18th just looking for someone to use these items on? Right. The whole situation is weird. 
It's horrid. It's strange. And we never really get answers about how he ended up doing this and how all of the people involved ended up in this scenario. So at this point in the story, Dawson seems like he doesn't really have a plan here as the days go on. Amy grows more and more fearful that he's going to kill her just because he doesn't know what else to do with her and the family members and the clock is ticking. She thinks people will notice her family is missing. Her grandparents in Nebraska probably have already started investigating their tardiness to their home. On April 20th, which is two days after the abduction, Dawson tells Amy that he's going to quickly step outside the motel room because there's some commotion going on outside he wants to investigate. And he tells her to go into the bathroom with her dog Tigger while he steps out. Amy goes back there to the bathroom, scared that he's actually leaving the motel to go get a murder weapon and kill her upon coming back. And a few minutes later, she hears the door open again, but it's not Dawson this time. Uh-oh. It's a different man's voice. And a few seconds later, in front of her stands a police detective. Oh, yeah. Okay. This detective had been searching desperately for the Rodstein family and has finally found the one living member and unfortunately also finds the bodies of the three Rodstein family members who have been murdered and piled under the motel bed comforters. It turns out that Monica's parents in Nebraska that they were supposed to be visiting did contact the Billings police when the family never showed up to their home and never called to give an update. The parents knew that that was really unlike them. So the abductor, David Dawson, is still at the motel at this point. He had actually stepped outside because he saw police and wanted to see if they were looking for the Rodsteins. And 29-year-old Dawson is immediately arrested on the scene for the murders of David, Monica, and A.J. Rodstein. That's funny. And for the abduction of all four family members. A quick look into Dawson's criminal background only shows minor criminal charges involving marijuana, but nothing at all violent that would foreshadow this horrific and senseless crime that he just carried out. Wow. As a kid, he had been kind of sickly, awkward, and lonely, like he had trouble making friends. And then as he grew older, he developed a drug habit. For the past few years, he had been employed as a construction worker leading up to the crimes and was known to actively be using marijuana and methamphetamine around the time of the triple homicide. It is at this point when Dawson is arrested and charged with the murders that Amy learns her family has been dead for the whole 48 hours when this whole time she thought they were just drugged and asleep. So she had been kept in a separate area of the motel room as them during the two days and had just been hoping that they would all make it out alive together. So although Amy has escaped with her life, this news and the past two days are absolutely soul crushing for her. I bet. Amy, a young 15 year old girl, has watched her entire immediate family and the people who she loves most in the world get murdered in the same room as her. She lost her 39-year-old parents and 11-year-old little brother, all so young with so much life left to live, and it's hard to imagine really anything more traumatic than what she lived through. So family members invite Amy to come live in their home with open arms, and these family members help support her and raise her through the trauma and into adulthood. Together, they're able to reminisce on all the great memories of the Rodstein family with Amy, 
which she so desperately needs, but this poor teenage girl also cannot completely escape this experience because she must face her family's killer again in the trial and bravely testify. Her testimony is crucial in this case, as she's the sole survivor of the abduction and murders that took place, and knows every detail of what happened from April 18th to April 20th of 1986. So the trial comes pretty quickly compared to many other murder cases. It takes place less than a year later, in February of 1987. This teenager, Amy Rodstein, testifies for over four hours, painstakingly recalling the deaths and the trauma from that nightmarish 48 hours where she lost every member of her family. She explains step-by-step, minute-by-minute, every detail that she can possibly remember from the hellish abduction. The autopsy results are also very important in this case. They show that David Rodstein's cause of death was asphyxiation, The report said that he had been strangled with, quote, a great deal of force, end quote. He also had bruises on his scalp and needle marks in his arms from being injected with that mysterious substance. Unfortunately, this substance was never identified. Hmm. Monica Rodstein's autopsy also showed death by asphyxiation and showed scalp bruising and needle marks just like her husband. There was no evidence of sexual assault, like no semen found, but Monica's shirt and bra had been removed and her pants had been opened by Dawson. Lastly, 11-year-old AJ's autopsy also shows that he was murdered via asphyxiation. Strangely, there was bruising on his chest that looked as though his skin had been intensely pinched over and over, either by fingers or by some instrument. How strange. David Dawson did not testify at his own trial. The jury deliberates for 14 hours and the judge announces finally that David Dawson is guilty of three counts of deliberate homicide, four counts of kidnapping, and one count of robbery. 14 hours? Seriously? Come on. Two months later at the sentencing, Judge Diane Bars sentences Dawson to death. Boom. And for the next 20 years, Dawson appeals his death sentence. But as he approaches the early 2000s, he just stops caring. Prison has taken his will to live, and he begins firing his attorneys and stops his appeals. Why does it take so long for people to die? Because of the legal appeals. It's like they have to be heard out multiple times, and they try to find like loopholes in the prosecution's case. Does anybody get off death row? Yeah, sometimes people are pardoned from death row, and it's changed to, like, life in prison instead of a death penalty. I think I'd rather just die than spend my life in prison. Yeah, me too. Dawson was in the same boat. He tells the prison workers that he's ready to die, and his time finally comes to be killed via lethal injection on August 11th of 2006, which is 20 years after the ruthless murders of the Rodstein family. Wow. In the days leading up to his death, he refuses to speak with lawyers or give any final statement. He just doesn't care anymore, and he stays silent. For his last meal, he chooses two double cheeseburgers, two large french fries, a half gallon of fudge ripple ice cream, and two bottles of Dr. Pepper. After this, he is administered lethal injection and is pronounced dead six minutes later at 12.06 a.m. on August 11th, 2006. He is the third of only three people to die of execution in Montana since the death penalty has resumed, 
and he is the last person to be executed by the state of Montana as of 2023. The surviving member of the Rodstein family, Amy, chooses to vacation with her family instead of attending the execution. She says she knows her parents would agree with this decision to prioritize living a peaceful life over giving any attention to her family's killer. She writes a letter, though, which says, quote, I'm doing well and living a wonderful life. Despite my family and I being victimized 20 years ago, I have chosen not to live my life as a victim. Instead of dwelling upon the horrible events that transpired, I concentrate on moving forward, keeping the living qualities of my family as an inspiration. My father's sense of humor, smile, and work ethic, my mother's dedication to family, kindness, and faith, and my brother's mischievousness just for life and enthusiasm. End quote. Amen. Amy's now husband also writes a letter explaining, quote, Amy, quite frankly, would rather spend this day with our family and children than allow Dawson's actions to have any more dominion over her life. She by no means wants to belittle the event. She realizes its importance, but believes it would be better to honor her family, David, Monica, and Andrew, and her current family to spend time vacationing with her children and watching them play at the beach, end quote. So as you can tell from me mentioning Amy's husband, Amy does grow into an adult, falls in love, and lives a vivacious and full life that honors her parents and brother. She has children of her own and strives to love her family the way that her parents loved her. Additionally, AJ's middle school planted a tree in his memory, which has since grown to be a towering, beautiful cottonwood in the middle of the school's lawn. That's sweet. Amy sometimes visits the tree to remember her charming and charismatic brother. And that is where I'll end this heartbreaking story. As always, thank you all for giving us a listen. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen so it can be spooky season year-round, even though it is spooky season now. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ghastly Podcast to see photos from each case. And we'll see you in two weeks on October 12th for our next episode. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.